I was hitting the right button, just hit it a bunch. So good to be here this morning. Thank you all for your attendance, and I really do appreciate the invitation to be here and to speak with you this morning. This congregation is a congregation that I've been to many times over the course of my life, dating back to when I was a child coming here for the youth meetings. I, actually, I believe one of the very first lessons I've ever given was here on this, it looked very different, but on this stage at a youth meeting many years ago, and it's a real pleasure to be back with you, to uh, see many of you again. And again, appreciate the invitation. My wife and I and our children are very happy to be up here. We love coming down to this area anyway. Came down early. We caught a baseball game last night up in Frisco and uh, just enjoy this part of, the, of, uh, of Texas. We, uh, as was mentioned before, I'm a, I serve as a deacon at the South Penn Church of Christ in Oklahoma City. If you're ever up in Oklahoma City, we want to extend an invitation to you to come worship with us uh, there in uh, the south part of Oklahoma City. We just moved into a, our new building, uh, I believe, last May, about a year ago. And would love to have you come worship with us. I, um, I did ask in advance if I could uh, pitch a, a YouTube channel that I help contribute to and several of us back in Oklahoma City contribute to. If you're looking for online Bible studies, we have a YouTube channel called Begin in the Word. I invite you to check it out. I think we've got probably over 300 studies on there by now. So I know that I'm, I'm always looking for a new podcast, new something online to listen to. I invite you to check that out. You'll see some material there. And you'll see some material that will relate to our study this morning and to the study we'll have this afternoon. This morning we're going to talk about Peter and Judas. Now, when I set out to start building this lesson, I thought that only the Gospel of Matthew did this comparison of Peter and Judas. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that Peter and Judas are put against each other in a way that the, the, the text is really calling us to compare them, to see the similarities and to see the differences. But as I studied, I found that all four Gospels do this. All four Gospels want to take Peter and Judas and put them side by side there in that, those closing chapters and, and draw some comparisons and contrasts. And as I studied this, I, it became abundantly clear to me that the Holy Spirit through the Gospels was giving us some important instruction on what it means to persevere through our failure. Because we're going to study this morning two men who had grievous sins. I have a subtitle, so it's meant to be a grab your attention. The two most grievous sins ever committed. Now, you might say, I don't know, maybe there's more grievous sins that can be committed than what Peter and Judas did. But I think as we study this morning, you'll find that it's hard to imagine someone doing something so wretched, so despicable, as what we find Peter and Judas doing. So some of the two most grievous sins, certainly, and perhaps the two most grievous sins ever committed, two of these men committed these sins. When I was building this lesson, there was a TV show that was, uh, I think it's still going, but uh, the picture on the screen is actually a screen capture I made of that TV show, of Peter and Judas from that show. We're going to study these two men, and we're going to see what the Bible tells us about these men and about what we can learn from them. First of all, who was Peter? We know quite a bit about Peter and Judas just through details you pick up in various passages here and there in Scripture. First of all, Peter was the son of Jonah. Remember Simon Bar-Jonah? That is Aramaic for son of Jonah. His dad's name was Jonah. He was from Capernaum, which is marked there on the map, there on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. He was chosen to be one of the twelve. So immediately, right there, you know that Peter is an important figure. Because throughout Jesus' public ministry, there were hundreds, and at points, even thousands of people who followed him. But he, 
handpicked 12 men to be the inner ring, the inner circle, those who had the most important job of carrying the message of the kingdom to Israel. And Peter was chosen to be one of the 12. And he ended up becoming the group leader. And we'll see that as we go, but he's kind of the group spokesman. Every time that there's a listing of the apostles, Peter is always first. He's always at the top of the list. And so we see Peter here as not just some random follower of Jesus, but we see Peter as someone who's got some importance. Someone who, from external eyes, was someone who mattered. Someone whose role in the mission of the kingdom was critical, was vital. This is not someone we would expect to be committing the sin he's going to commit that we're going to look at in just a minute. Who was Judas? Judas was the son of Simon. It's a detail we pick up from the Gospel of John. Only John mentions the fact that he was the son of Simon Iscariot. And as I was putting this lesson together, I don't know why it didn't ever hit me before, but it hit me as I was studying this lesson that there was a time in Judas's life that he was a baby in his dad's arms, Simon. Simon was a real man who raised a real child. And it struck me as I think about my kids and the young people that I go to church with. As Simon looked at his little child, could he possibly have imagined what this child was going to do? What this child was capable of, the rejection, the betrayal. He's the son of Simon Iscariot. He is likely from a town called Kerioth, which is marked on the map with that little red dot. And we know that because the name Iscariot likely means man from Kerioth. Could mean some other things, but most commentators would say Judas was from Kerioth down in the southern part, which would mean he's the only one of the 12 who's not from the Galilee area. Galilee is in the northern part of the map on the screen. Judas is from the south. He was chosen to be one of the 12. And so don't picture Judas as just some guy who was always at the back of the line. He was important. And from external eyes, Judas was one of the guys in the inner ring. In fact, he was so critical to the operations of Jesus and his 12 that he was the group's treasurer. The Bible tells us he had the money bag. And here's what that would mean. Whenever the apostles showed up in a town to preach the mission of the kingdom and they needed some money, let's put it in modern terms. Let's say they needed to run down to Kinko's and make some photocopies for the upcoming meeting that Jesus was preaching at. You went to Judas. And you'd say, hey, Judas, we need some funds for this or that or the other. He was the group's treasurer. And I'm going to tell you something about a treasurer in a business. You always pick a man you can trust to be the money man. You don't pick a guy you don't trust to be in charge of the money bag. So this tells me that the 11 had trust in Judas. They had trust in him. To be honest, to not steal. Now, the Bible tells us that he was embezzling money. And you might think, well, that's a pretty bad sin. And it is. But turn on your television. How many so-called preachers of the gospel on TV do we see fly private jets across the world, show up in some impoverished country, and tell them, if you give me your money, your crops will grow, and you'll have more babies? How many people use the gospel for their own pocketbooks? And so we shouldn't be surprised that that's an age-old practice going back to Judas himself, taking the money from good citizens from good members of the kingdom taking it and using it for personal purposes 
And Judas always appears last in the lists. The various times you find the list, if Judas is in the list, if it's one of the ones before he died, he's always last. So you've got Simon on one end, you've got Judas on the other. Both were called by Jesus, and both had some prominence. Matthew 10, 1 through 4. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve are, are these, twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, there's a few things about this text that are really important to call out. I, I did a, I mentioned the, the, the YouTube channel that we do. We actually looked at this text and broke it down. There's a lot in this text to really drink in. The first thing you'll notice, I don't know if you can see it on the screen, is the position of the semicolons. Now, as you know, in Greek, they didn't have semicolons like we did. But the Greek construction is very clear that this is not just a list of 12. It's a list of six pairs. It's this guy and this guy, and then this guy and this guy, and this guy and this guy. And the reason that's important is you find in the limited commission that Jesus always sent them out in twos. And so I've always wondered, well, what were the pairings? Well, the text tells us the pairings. Well, the first one is Simon, Peter, and Andrew, his brother. That makes good sense. They're brothers. They're the first pair. And then James and John, they're brothers. Philip and Bartholomew, and most commentators believe Bartholomew is is the same as Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. And you'll know from John chapter 1 that Philip and Nathaniel were friends. So it makes sense that they go out together. Thomas and Matthew, James and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot as that last pairing. Now the word here, first, Simon, who was called Peter, that word first does not just mean first in the order that I'm about to tell you. That's obvious. But it actually means some type of prominence. He was if you will, the ringleader of the twelve. First was Simon, and then Andrew. Whenever you start a business, you have to do some, you have to appoint officers pretty fast. And generally, there's three officers you've got to appoint really quickly. One is the chairman, one is the secretary, and one is the treasurer. And it appears that we know two of the three, if you were to put those modern terms on the group of the twelve. Peter's the chairman. He's the spokesman. Whenever the 12 are huddled up and someone has to come out and say something on behalf of, behalf of the group, Peter's the spokesman. He's the chairman. And Judas is the treasurer. He's the one responsible for the money. He's the one they trust to handle it with honesty. I think it's likely that Matthew was the secretary taking the notes. He's the tax collector. He, he's got that ability. Both of these men were called by Jesus and both of these men had a position of some type of prominence. Now, I want to step through some major events in the, life of the lives of these two men as we come down to the final few months, the final, let's say, six months or so of Jesus' life. So we're talking about a period of time where Peter and Judas, they've both followed Jesus. They've both been involved in kingdom work. They both have performed miracles. We have no indication that Judas wasn't given the same gift of the Spirit that the other eleven were. By every indication in Scripture, Judas looked, functioned, and acted just like an apostle. And that's gone on for a couple of years now. So we're coming kind of down the backside of the ministry of Jesus before he is crucified. And we're going to look at some things that happen in their life. 
First, I want to call out is this incident at Caesarea Philippi where Peter is embarrassed in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I once heard someone describe Peter as someone who would say, Ready, fire, aim. That was his order. Ready, fire, aim. And that seems to be what's going on here. He was the kind of man who would speak before he would think. And the text says here that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now, what kind of man would take the Son of God aside and rebuke him? But Jesus had just said something that didn't fit in Peter's worldview. Jesus said very clearly that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to be killed. The Messiah was not supposed to go to Jerusalem and be killed. That's not what the Jews of that time thought. They thought the Messiah would come into Jerusalem, would take over the throne of David, and drive out all of the oppressors of the, of the Jews. That's what they thought. And that's not what Jesus said would happen. So Peter pulls him aside and says, Lord, do I need to teach you the Old Testament? Do I need to teach you that, that that's not what the Messiah is supposed to be doing? He rebukes Jesus. Now something the text points out that just catches my eye is it would be one thing for Jesus to immediately turn to Peter and say, Peter, get get behind me, Satan, and rebuke Peter. But notice what the text says. I've got it bolded. But Jesus turned and saw the disciples, plural. He saw the other 11, and then he rebuked Peter. Jesus was making a public rebuke of Peter's words. Peter pulls Jesus aside and has this to say, and then Jesus sees the 11, and Jesus makes a very pointed and public correction of Peter. That's embarrassing. It's, it's always awkward to get corrected in private. To get corrected in public is a completely different thing. It's embarrassing. No one likes being embarrassed in public. I was just telling the kids on the drive down this morning that I don't remember much about the lesson I gave here when I was at a youth meeting years and years ago, but I do remember I totally forgot what I was supposed to say. And I got up here and just kind of, blah, blah, blah. it was embarrassing. And all these years later, I remember that. We remember those times where we're embarrassed publicly. And Peter was embarrassed here. Jesus saw the 11 and said, I need to make an example out of Peter. And he corrects him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, something we're going to see about Peter that I, I really want us to hold on to. This happens a lot in the life of Peter. And this is what, a part of what makes him a different man than Judas. When Peter was embarrassed when peter was corrected he took his correction like a man we don't see peter going off in a corner and stewing and saying well i'll show them i'll show those 11 just wait till i get my chance to shine we don't see that in peter when peter has a failure when peter is rebuked and believe me he fails He's going to fail worse than this. What does he do the next day? He shows back up at work and he clocks in at his apostle job and he keeps doing what he's supposed to do. When Peter took a licking, he took it like a man. It's an important thing to know about Peter. 
Peter was a lot of things. He was quick-tempered. He was hasty to speak. Not particularly thoughtful. But something we don't find in Peter is arrogance. We find a man who says, well, I've been corrected. I guess I'll just go about my business and try to be better. That's every indication we get from Peter in the scriptures. But something else going on in this text is that Satan has already began to work on Peter. Jesus doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan is at work in the heart of Peter. And Satan wants to stop the crucifixion. He doesn't want to see this come to fruition, God's plan of salvation. So get behind me, Satan. Judas is similarly similarly embarrassed sometime later at Bethany. The Bible says in John 12, 1 through 8, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was, this anointment, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you ha- always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, both Matthew and Mark, when they record the event we just read, make it very clear that this is what motivated Jesus to go to the chief priests and betray Jesus. Motivated Judas to do that to Jesus, rather. Judas' motives weren't pure. Jesus knows that. The Bible tells us that Jesus knew the whole time what Judas would do. This was not a surprise to Jesus. This was a surprise to the eleven, but this was not a surprise to Jesus. And so Judas sees this this Mary here, taking this expensive ointment, and he says, well, we could, have, we could have sold this and given it to the poor, and by the way, I'm in charge of the money bag, so when you have the proceeds from the sale, give it to me, I'll put it in the bag and make sure it's properly accounted for. That's what Jesus is thinking. And Jesus says, don't, leave her alone. We're not going to do that. She's doing something very important for my burial. Of course, Jesus is thinking about what's coming on Passover weekend. And so Judas, Mark 14.10 says, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Now, do you see the difference between Peter and Judas already? Because Peter got embarrassed at Caesarea Philippi, and the text seems to indicate that he just went about his job as an apostle the very next day. Judas receives this embarrassment, and he says, oh, i got to find a way to get even. I can't put up with that. My reputation can't be tarnished like this. And so the scriptures tell us that he, because of this, no doubt because of a lot of other things, but this was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Because of this, he goes to the chief priests in order to portray Jesus. And the plan of betrayal is now born in the heart of Judas. Matthew 26, 14 through 16, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
And just as we notice that Satan was working on the heart of Peter, remember Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Satan is also working on the heart of Judas. Luke 22, three through six, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one uh, who was of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, the question that it's worth thinking about is, did Satan take a good man in Judas and turn him into a bad man? Because the text is clear that it was Satan who entered the heart of Judas to go do this thing. But don't forget what Jesus said in John 12 and 6. Or what John says of Judas in John 12 and 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Satan didn't take a good man and turn him bad. Satan took a man who was already carrying around evil within his heart, and he took advantage of that to the betrayal of Jesus. And so we have Satan working on Peter. We have Satan working on Judas. And the closer we get to the weekend of the crucifixion, the more similar these men appear. Satan working on their hearts. Two of the twelve. Two important men of the twelve. And then we come to the Last Supper. Now I want to call attention to this picture. If you can see it. There's a lot of pictures of the Last Supper that just aren't realistic. The famous one is Leonardo da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper where all 12 sit on the same side of the table. I've never been to a meal that worked quite like that. So that's not how it was. And this is a detail that's actually pretty important because as you read the text of the the events of the Last Supper, you'll find that there's some details that don't quite make sense unless you kind of understand how they would sit at a meal like this in their time. They didn't sit, for the most part, For these kinds of meals, they didn't sit at an elevated table with chairs. The table was lower to the ground, and they would recline at the table. In their world, as in many countries today, they didn't use their left hand for for eating or for much. So they would lean on their left arm up into this table, and they would eat with their right arm as they would eat the meal. And then they would lay lay on their side, and they would file in side by side. And that's that's how people would eat at this time. Now, this is, uh, this is an important detail because you remember the Bible talks about John leaning into the bosom of Jesus. And I got to tell you, when I was a kid and I would read about John being in the bosom of Jesus, I would think, is John like three? How does that work? Well, John is in front of Jesus. And so when John needs to speak to Jesus, he has to turn his head and lean back into the chest of Jesus. That's how they would sit in their day. That was perfectly normal arrangement. Now, some things are said at the Last Supper that some people hear and other people don't hear. And at one point, Peter has to raise his voice across the table and motion with his hand. I want you to envision this in your mind. Envision this scene of 12 men gathered around a table like this. And we're going to talk about the seating arrangement in just a minute. But that's what's going on here, this Last Supper. During the supper, John 13 tells us, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, To betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. It is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was about to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. This is an amazing text that we think about a lot. The tremendous act of service. Jesus rose from supper, as the text tells us. And he took a towel and he wrapped it about himself. And he went around to the twelve and he washed their feet. Their feet were back behind the table. Now, whatever you want to say about Judas betraying Jesus and about Peter denying Jesus in the coming hours. We're down to just a few hours from all that happening. Both of these men betrayed their Lord with clean feet. Think about that. Both of these men would betray and deny their Lord with clean feet We're going to see this about Jesus, that up until the very end, he loved these men. And he gave them every chance, every chance to avoid doing what they were soon to do. Now, Peter has an objection. Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And to the people of this day, that objection was totally reasonable. That wasn't the job of the... Of the, of the boss, the guy in charge. That's not his job. That's the servant's job. He shouldn't get down there and wash our feet. I mean, who, who among us... Imagine this scene for a moment. Let's say you've got a bunch of men in their 20s and one of the elders of the congregation gathered around a toilet and they're trying to unstop the toilet and the elders in there doing the hard work while the 20-year-somethings are standing around with hands on their hip and just watching. I mean, that's not a good scene. We shouldn't let that happen. You shouldn't stand by and let someone of honor do that kind of work when someone else could step in. That's, that's what's going on in this situation. Most people would look at that and say, the boss, Jesus, should not be washing feet. Make, make one of the servants, make one of the apostles do that, but don't have Jesus wash the feet. Totally reasonable, but Jesus won't have that objection. And he washes his feet anyway. And then Jesus foretells Judas' betrayal. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, remember, we said they didn't know it was Judas. It would have been very easy for them to say at this moment, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And someone says, oh, I bet it's Judas. I kind of knew it all along. He was always shady. No. Even when Judas gets up and leaves supper, they, they start to think, well, he must be doing something for the poor. No one had a clue, except Jesus, what was about to happen. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, now remember the seating arrangement here. 
So apparently you've got Jesus in one position. I'll advance so we can actually look at this. You've got Jesus in one position and John in front of him. Because when John needs to talk to Jesus, he has to lean back to talk to Jesus. And Peter wants to get John's attention because John's sitting by Jesus. So Peter is on the other side and he waves him down. He says, John, ask Jesus who's going to betray him. So Peter's waving with his hand. And so John leans back to talk to Jesus. And he asks Jesus. So that's, I want you to envision that in your mind. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that we should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. That's the reason we can assume that Judas was the other person on the other side of Jesus. I can go back to that. Jesus has a little conversation with Judas and with John, and no one else hears it. Because when Judas gets up, they say, well, he's, he's going to do something for the poor to prepare for Passover. They didn't hear this conversation. So I imagine in my mind a group of 12 men in this room, and you hear in the background the dull sound, the dull roar of conversation going on. Especially now. They're saying, well, I wonder who's going to betray Jesus. And amidst all of this commotion and conversation, Peter waves down Jesus, waves down John and says, ask him who it is. And so Jesus takes this choice morsel and hands it to Judas. It is likely that Judas sat directly to the left of Jesus because Jesus hands him the sop and confirms, according to Matthew, that he would deny him. And no one else heard this. So this puts Judas in that third seat. Now, there's something interesting about that third seat. In the Roman triclinium, that seat was called the place of the locus consularis, which means the guest of honor. And Peter is down on the other side, the very end, if, if we're placing this correctly, which was the place reserved for guests of less honor. And so by Roman custom, that means Judas has picked for himself or somehow got the seat of honor at this feast. Now, he is the treasurer. He's got the money. He's an important guy. And here he is in the seat of honor. It reminds us of Luke 14, 7 through 11, where Jesus tells a parable and he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. That seems to be what Judas has done. He's taken the seat of honor. Now, notice in the middle of the text we read that Jesus says, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, I don't know, I assume that there are Johnny Carinos down in this part of the country. And one of my favorite things to do, it's an Italian restaurant. I see some nods. I think you know what I'm talking about. One of my favorite things to do at Johnny Carino's is when they bring the bread and you dip it in the olive oil and the balsamic. You know what I'm talking about. Well, that's normal. That's what he's talking about. You take some bread and you dip it in the stuff. It's good. Jesus took the morsel of bread and dipped it. So there they are, eating a Johnny Carino style. That's what's going on here. And he gave it to Judas. 
For the host to hand the morsel, the choice morsel like this, to a guest was a sign of endearment and a gesture of sincere love and honor. It should have moved Judas to repent. This gesture, this symbolic gesture. Sometimes I think we don't fully appreciate what Jesus is doing here, as if Jesus is just doing some type of cryptic message to say, it's, it's this guy, I'm giving him the... Jesus is giving Judas the choice morsel. That is a statement of honor and a statement of sincere love, and it should have moved Judas to repent. And whatever else you can say about Judas and his betrayal, you can say this. He betrayed Jesus not only with clean feet, but with a full stomach. Until the very end, Jesus loved Judas and gave him every opportunity to hit the brakes and to stop. Don't do what you're about to do. And so Jesus foretells Judas's betrayal, Matthew 26, 20 through 25. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now I have come to believe there are no accidents in Scripture. And every word and every detail matters. I've realized I clicked way too far ahead. I don't know what I did, but I was looking down and I saw something different. All right. Did you notice what the disciples said to one another as they were speaking to Jesus? They said, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? A term of authority? A term of respect? A term of recognizing their position as being subordinate to Jesus? He is, in fact, Lord. But when it comes around to Judas, did you see what Judas says to him? He answered, is it I, Rabbi? Teacher? Now, as you study scripture, you'll find that the apostles, the disciples will frequently refer to Jesus as Lord, but his opponents won't. They'll call him teacher, rabbi. And so even in this subtle way, we start to see a problem in the heart of Judas. Whereas everyone recognizes Jesus as Lord, he just recognizes Jesus as a teacher, as a rabbi. Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter, again, in Matthew 26, 33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, we already pointed out that Satan's been working on Judas This plan of betrayal, and Satan is also working on Peter. This coming denial. And Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you. Now the word you that we've bolded up on that top line is plural. Satan has demanded to have y'all, you would say in Texas. That he might sift y'all like wheat. But here it's singular. But Simon, I prayed for you. 
that your faith may not fail. Jesus knows that Peter has a very important role in the stability of this early church after the crucifixion and resurrection. Now, Peter's bold. He says, listen, those 11, they could all fall away, and I will never fall. You can imagine Peter. You can almost hear Peter saying, Lord, you and I know that these 11, I mean, we could have done a little better maybe. You know, they could fall away. I could see that that's possible. But you know me, I'm never falling away. And that's Peter's confidence. I believe that he believed this. I think he believed it with all of his heart. Lord, I will never fall away. Now on the screen here is a map. It's a map of Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. On the bottom left quadrant of the map, that's the lower city, that is likely where the Last Supper is taking place. After the Last Supper, they're going to leave that lower quadrant and they're going to go to the right side of the map, across the Kidron to the Mount of Olives. And there Jesus will be arrested and he will be taken back over to now the upper part of the city in the upper left area where he will be Uh, He'll go through a series of trials, and then he'll be crucified. So this is all going to happen over the course of a couple, uh, just hours. We're not talking days, we're talking hours from this point on. And so Judas betrays Jesus. Matthew 26, 47 through 50, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. There's that word again. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Let's go ahead and read the passage in John. John 18, 8 through 11. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you you have gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut his right ear off. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? There is no more enigmatic exchange, ironic exchange in all of Scripture than for Jesus to be betrayed by one of his friends with a kiss. I can't imagine what the eleven are thinking when they see Judas coming with all of the guard. What's going through their mind? I know what's going through Peter's mind. It's that heads are going to roll. I have contemplated in my mind, how can you, in a moment, cut off someone's ear? That seems like a very precise act. And the only thing I can come up with is that he's aiming for the neck. And Malchus, on his reflexes, takes a, a dip, and here comes the ear right off. Peter's wanting heads to roll. Peter won't take this. Here comes Judas. Now the mystery is solved. We know who the betrayer is. Here comes Judas. And Peter's ready to start killing. Like I said, I believe that he he believed he would go with Jesus until death. Now Jesus says something to Judas that jumps off the page at me. He says, friend, do what you came to do. Now this word friend in the Greek is not just the normal word for friend. It is a word that is typically used by a superior when speaking down to an inferior. And an English equivalent would be 
buddy, old pal. Sometimes I might say that to my kids. They're acting up. I'll say, listen, buddy, old pal. That does not mean they're on my level. That's a term of derision, but it means friend. That's the word Jesus uses here. Friend, do what you came to do. The betrayal is complete. I can't help but wonder if Jesus is not actually talking at Judas. But he's speaking to Satan. Indeed, Judas's work here is done. He's done. Satan's got what he wanted. He wouldn't testify at the trial, and the Jewish leaders had no more use for him. So when he says, friend, do what you came here to do, I can't help but think that he's not talking at Judas anymore. He's talking to Satan. And what was once a moment where Satan was working on the heart of Judas has turned into an overcoming. Satan has overcame the heart of Judas, and Judas has fully and completely surrendered himself to the influence of Satan in his life. Now Jesus tries to negotiate a deal. He says, you're coming for me, let these men go. Now Simon, Mr. I'll go with you to the death, Simon, he wouldn't allow himself to be a token in this negotiation. He takes matters into his own hands. He's ready to kill for Jesus, and I suspect he was ready to kill even Judas himself. It would look to all involved that we're looking at a man of total and complete commitment and faith. But he unravels in a way that is just hard to fathom. Matthew 26, 69 through 74. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him. Now Jesus is arrested, and he's taken back um, to the house of the high priest. And Peter follows along at a distance, and he's sitting out in the courtyard. So that's, that's the imagery here. Jesus is on an overnight trial. It's at nighttime, and Jesus is sitting out in the courtyard. A servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Now, I think Peter could have convinced himself at this moment in time that he didn't technically deny Jesus. Now, we know that he did. But listen to what he says. He says, I don't know what you mean. He says, oh, this girl says, yeah, 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 you were with Jesus, the Galilean. Peter says, believe this girl. I don't know what she's talking about. I don't know what you mean. It's the first thing he says. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Now he's gone over the, over the line. He knew the man, but here he is denying him, denying he even knows him. And if you can believe it, it gets worse in ways that are hard to fathom. And a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. He's from Galilee, and they have an accent. The Bible says then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Verse 74 is difficult to interpret. And what I thought coming up as a child was the meaning is almost certainly not the meaning. I always thought it meant, well, he just used a, a bad word. He cursed, said a bad word. That's not what that means. The Greek word is the word anathema, anathematize. And that is a word that ha takes an object. Now, the Greek doesn't tell us who he's cursing. The translators have supplied it here by saying he invoked a curse on himself. I believe the King James just says he cursed. doesn't tell you who he cursed. 
So it's up to us as readers to try to figure out what's going on there. But he is anathematizing. Let me tell you what that means. To anathematize means to invoke the wrath of God to send someone to hell. That's what that means. And so Peter is confronted. You know this, Jesus. You know this guy. Your, your accent betrays you. You're from Galilee, where he was. Certainly you know who this Jesus is. And he begins to summon down the wrath of God on this place. Commentators disagree. Maybe it's on himself. Maybe it's on the bystanders. Some commentators say maybe it's on Jesus himself. But he is saying, I'm telling you, I don't know Jesus. And if I did, God can send me and you and Jesus to hell. That's what he's saying. Can you imagine a man of God who just moments ago was ready to let heads roll for the cause of the kingdom? Can you imagine a man of God doing that? He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. What started as a, I don't know what you're talking about, and it turned into an oath of saying, I don't know the man, has now turned into an outright fundamental rejection of his faith. Then when Judas, we're going to cut back to Judas now. Then when Judas' betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. Now, if Peter, the text says this, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Both Judas and Peter at this moment, on this Thursday evening, deeply regret their sin. Judas is no doubt thinking, you know, Jesus has gotten himself out of pickles before. The Jews have been trying to kill him for a while, and he's somehow managed to get out of this every single time. And, I mean, I thought this was just a way to get even and make a quick 30 pieces of silver. And now he's being tried, and he's almost certainly going to be killed. And Judas deeply regrets his actions. He changed his mind. That's what that means. He regretted it. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver. And the chief priest said, buddy, you're done. We don't need you anymore. You you see it. It's your money. Peter, same situation. Now, there's a detail in the account in Luke that really grabs at my heart. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter has denied Jesus three times. He is now in the process of summoning down hellfire from God. And in the midst of his outright rejection of faith, Jesus turns and makes eye contact with Peter. And that hurt. It hurts me to think about it. It hurt. And the Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. Both of these men regretted their actions. I want you to know that Friday morning, midnight, that's what we're talking about here. Thursday night, Friday morning. These men were the same. Both were prominent men, the leader and the treasurer of the group. Both came under assault 
the attack and influence of Satan upon their lives, and both yielded to the temptation. Both men rejected Jesus in his most painful moment. And both men felt deep regret for what they had done. On Friday, these two men were the same. But what made them different is where they were on Sunday morning. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter defied all odds in my mind. Because on Sunday morning, he was back with the disciples. I'm going to tell you what I would have done. In the moment of weakness, if I betrayed a close friend in this way, at his moment of death, and then I saw him be arrested, and I knew he was crucified, it would have been very easy for Peter to say, well, we had a good run. I'm going back to Galilee. I'm going back to my wife and kids. I'm going back to live the life I lived before. And I'll just do the best I can to forget that this chapter of my life ever happened. But where was he on Sunday? He was back with the the others. Back with the 11. Now you know what happened when Jesus showed up on Friday evening back at the house where they were staying. Because the other disciples fled. Only Peter and John followed Jesus after the the arrest. And so I can just imagine in my mind. Peter comes through the front door, John lagging behind. And out comes Matthew saying, Peter, tell us what happened. Did they arrest him? Did they kill him? What what did you do? You were there. Did you try to stop him? Did you testify to to his defense? Did you tell us, Peter, what did you do? You know who else knew that conversation was going to happen? Peter. And he still went back anyway. And one of the things that makes Peter a special man is when he failed, he got back up and he kept doing what he was supposed to do. Matthew 27, 3 through 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. He went and hanged himself. Both of these men were different on Sunday. They were the same on Friday. Both rejected their Lord. But come Sunday, they were different. There will be inflection points in your life. There will be moments in your life where after a grave failure to live up to who you know God has called you to be, you must decide, do I stay or do I go? You can be Peter. You can take your licking like a man. You can endure the embarrassment 
and recall to mind the goodness of the Lord. You can return. You can strengthen the brothers and you can be where you need to be on a Sunday morning. Or you can be Judas. You can let your worldly sorrow have its victory and commit spiritual suicide. You will find many ways to pacify your conscience. You'll think the times have changed. You'll find some way to convince yourself you're right. You'll tell yourself, you know, I really don't need them. I don't need their songs. I don't need their sermons. I don't need their communion. I don't need them. They won't accept me anyway. And you can say that, but inside your soul hangs lifelessly from the tree of your own making. You can be a Judas. And my encouragement to you this morning In those moments of your failure, don't be Judas. Be where you're supposed to be on Sunday. That's the only difference between Peter and Judas so far as I can tell. Because they both failed in ways that are hard to fathom. But Peter, he was thinking, you know, when I'm back with the fellow believers on Sunday, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. I'm going to have to fess up. They're not going to like what I did. There might be a little judgment, but it's where I belong. And in those moments in your life where you fail in ways that I promise you right now, you don't think you can fail in that way. In those moments, you're going to have a decision to make on Saturday night. What am I going to do? Do I stay or do I go? Don't be Judas. Now, there was someone who saw everything that Peter did that night. I'm not talking about Jesus. He saw it. But it was John. He was there. John knew everything that happened. The only reason Peter could even get into the courtyard, Scripture tells us, is because John was a friend of the high priest and had access. If you'll allow me just a moment to visualize what might have happened that Sunday morning when Peter shows up and John knows exactly what happened on Friday. Do you think John wagged his finger at Peter and said, I knew better than to put you in charge? I don't think so. In fact, I know so. You pick up the book of Acts just days after this, what do you see Peter and John doing in Acts chapter 3? Pairing back up together, working in the field for the kingdom. And John saw Peter at his weakest moment. And you know what John did? He forgave him and they moved on. You can be a Peter and this congregation is a congregation full of Johns. And they will love you and they will help you and you can get back to the business of working for the Lord. Or you can be a Judas. When I was a kid, I was very young, I remember reading the account of what happened to Judas and how the Bible says he changed his mind. And I went to my dad and I said, certainly, certainly, you know, Judas changed his mind. Certainly it's going to be fine, right? Maybe, surely he's got a happy ending to his story. My dad pointed me to this verse in Mark 14, 21. 
For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. If in the moment of your failure you don't get up and return to where you need to be on Sunday and you make the choice to walk away, I'm going to tell you, it would have been better for you if you had not been born. You have tasted, you have seen that the Lord is good. Don't walk away. I'm not going to get up here this morning and tell you that you're not going to fail. I'm going to tell you you're going to fail, and you're going to fail worse than you ever thought possible. But I assure you, if you act like Peter and come back to where you need to be, you will find grace to help in a time of need. Thank you for your kind attention this morning. Appreciate you so much. Appreciate this invitation. Appreciate this congregation. If you need the help of the church in any way this morning at all, we would love to assist you. If you need to put the Lord on in baptism, we'd love to help you with that. Or if you need the prayers of the church, please come while we stand and sing the invitation song.